This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ruth Ozeki. Welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Ruth is a Japanese-American novelist, filmmaker, and a Zen Buddhist priest whose four books have been widely and critically acclaimed. Her third novel, A Tale for the Time Being, won the LA Times Book Prize and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Her most recent novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, won the prestigious Women's Prize for Fiction of 2022. It's an irresistible novel about the power of of reading and books, as well as the mess of consumer culture. Ruth, I think the book of form and emptiness and better reading is a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yeah, it is exactly what we do. I am in the very, very privileged position mm. of having a job that is my life where all I do day in, day out is talk to wonderful writers. I had Geraldine Brooks in the office last week, Pulitzer Prize. I know, every day I have to pinch myself. Yeah, Yeah. and then here you are talking about the same subject. So, Ruth, tell me, I I mean, you know, there's so much there, novelist, filmmaker, Zen Buddhist. Now, I would say novelist, filmmaker, same category, storytelling. Uh, Zen mm-hmm. Buddhist priest? I'm not sure. You'll have to explain that. <laughs> it's kind of, I think it might be anti-storytelling or something. No, not really. Uh, well, you know, it, it it's something that, uh, I, you know, I've been interested in Buddhism all my life. Um, my uh, Japanese grandparents were both Zen Buddhists. And um, the first memory I have as a very small human being, I think I was three years old or something, and my um, Japanese grandparents came to the United States to, to visit. And I remember they arrived at night and my mother sent me into the bedroom where they were sleeping. And it was actually my parents' bedroom. So, you know, these these mysterious grandparents had displaced my parents, who were obviously the most powerful people in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so they must be very powerful indeed. And um, my mother sent me in to, to call them for breakfast. And I remember walking up to the door and you know, raising my hand to the doorknob because it was very tall and opening it up, pushing the door open. And I saw my grandparents sitting on the floor. Now, in New Haven, Connecticut in 1959, adults did not sit on the floor, right? And so this was weird enough. And then they were sitting on the floor cross-legged and they were kind of rocking back and forth. And just at that moment, my grandfather opened his eyes and sort of locked eyes with me. Right. And I was just, 
you know, I was just terrified. <laughs> and I went running back out to the kitchen to tell my mother. I mean, I was terrified, but also fascinated, right? And to tell to tell my mother. And, and what they were doing was they were just finishing their meditation, right? So, so this is my first memory as a, as a person, as a human being. And it was, you know, the memory of my grandfather, my grandparents sitting zazen, sitting, you know, meditation. And I suppose, you know, part of it is that I grew up during the 1960s and, you know, everybody was meditating then. And so I just kind of continued this interest in it, um, reading books when I was younger. And then when I was 14, I was um, initiated into transcendental meditation. Wow. So I did that for a long time. And then I uh, got involved with um, a Tibetan Buddhist group and, and you know, was uh, sitting with them for a while. Um, in college, too, I studied Buddhism. And, um, and I also did a lot of the Buddhist arts, you know, so I did, you know, I, I, um, I have a teacher's license in flower arrangement and I have studied uh, Japanese no theater, which is very heavily influenced by Buddhist tradition. And, and so then, you know, I just, that just kind of continued. And um, then, you know, in my forties, I guess, is that right? Yes. It was in my late thirties my parents were getting old and they were, you know, approaching the ends of their lives. And it was clear to me that I was going to have to take care of them because I'm an only child. And, and this was terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. And that's really when my interest in Buddhism got very, very serious because, mm -hmm. you know, Buddhism is very good with sickness, old age, and death. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I laugh when I say that, but, but um, you know, it, it's, uh, Buddhism is very helpful when it comes to confronting, you know, the stark realities of human life. And so that's when I started practicing. It's interesting you should say that because my mother died recently, um, just mm, in the last sorry. couple of months. Yeah. Nah, tough. Sorry. It's a tough gig, oh, isn't it? It's Liz? really hard. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but it brings me back to your book because I took solace in reading. I couldn't, you know, how do you handle grief? I don't know. There's not really a proper path, is there? Uh, maybe there is meditation. But I guess I, I just grabbed what I knew. I was given, there's a beautiful writer in Australia called Chloe Hooper, and she'd written this uh, book called Bedtime Story, which is a piece of nonfiction about her partner being sick and how would she mm. then tell her children. Now, I had gone to San Francisco and a friend of mine had given me a proof copy of Chloe's book and I took it with me to San Francisco and I didn't read it. I read everything else while I was over there, but I didn't read that. And then as I was packing up to come home and I had to come home early because my mother was not well, I packed up the apartment and I thought I left most of the books for the apartment, but I thought, no, I'm not going to leave Chloe's book. I'll take that with me. So I, I'll read it on the plane. Anyway, so I took it back and I didn't read it on the plane. And then the first day I went in to sit with my mother for whatever reason, it was in my handbag and I pulled it out in my purse and I started reading it out loud. And that then defined the next seven days. Oh my goodness. This is the truly miraculous thing about books is that they find you when mm. you need, when you need the book, mm. you know, mm. the book will appear and, and it will find you and it will give you what you need. And, mm. and I found this, I found this to be the case in so many instances where something will be happening and I'll need a certain kind of support or I'll need a certain kind of, you know, perspective and the right book just shows up. And mm. so this is one of the things that I was playing with in the book of form and emptiness is this idea of, you know, books just showing up when you need them.
Mm. And that's extraordinary because when I started reading this book, I thought, oh, my God, that's my recent experience. You know, that is really, and I guess I have been that way most of my life, but I'd never read about it. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, yeah, sure, mm. sure. And that, that's the other wonderful thing about books is, is when, you know, you recognize the experience that's being described so, you know, so intensely, right? And you think, how, did, how, how does this book know? Mm. But that's the beauty of reading, isn't it? And storytelling is finding yourself sometimes in places that you don't even expect to find yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the beauty? Yeah. 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 Tell me how you came to writing. Oh, let's see now. I mean, you know, so far back, I don't even remember. I always loved to read and I read voraciously as a young child. I spent almost every summer vacation in the basement of our local library, which is, you know, was where the, you know, the the children's book section was. um, And I just haunted it. And I just knew that I always wanted to you know, to write these books, you know, I wanted to write books like the books that I was, that I was reading. I mean, again, I was an only child and, and my parents were, um, they were in their forties when they had me. And so there was a huge age gap, you know, also at that time, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, parents didn't exactly play with their children in the same way that happens now, right? Yeah. Yeah, It was very formal. It was very different. They had their lives. Yeah. I had my life. And, And so my friends were books, you know, my yeah. friends were all books. And so so when you finished school, you went to, um, we call it university here. Mm. When you were forming your career and growing up as a person, did you feel that you were a filmmaker? Did you feel that you were a novelist? Mm. What kind of jobs did you do to get you to here? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I... In high school, I went to a high school that had a very, a very kind of advanced media education mandate. And so I was doing a lot with film and video um, and photography, you know, even in high school. Um, but I was also, they also had a wonderful literary magazine and I was part of that. Um, so even back then, even in high school, my interests were kind of split between film and, and television production. I mean, this was a really long time ago, so the technology has changed, you know, so much. But I was I was kind of split between, you know, these, these genres. And But back then I was not writing fiction as much much as I was writing poetry in high school. Um, But we took our writing very, very seriously. I mean, we thought we were all F. Scott Fitzgerald and (laughs) Hemingway and, you know, Anais Nin and Virginia Woolf. We we were these people, you know, we were their their incarnations, you know, at at the age of 14 and 15 years old, you know. And then when I went to, uh, when I went to college, when I went to university, um, I started writing um, short fiction. I started writing short stories. And that was, you know, I felt like I was coming closer and closer to the thing that I really wanted to do. I got sidetracked though, because um, for a while in university, I was also reading and studying English literature. And I just fell head over heels in love with Shakespeare. And I decided that I wanted to be a Shakespeare scholar. And at the time, of course, somebody who looked like me with a, you know, uh, you know, an Asian face, uh, you know, it, it was there was a disconnect there for many of my teachers and um, many of my professors. And they suggested that I do comparative literature instead. So I ended up going to Japan for several years to study uh, classical Japanese literature and in particular classical Japanese theater. So I did that and then eventually ended up 
not pursuing a scholarly career, but coming back to New York. Yeah, I met a guy, fell in love, you know, and um, as you do, (laughs) as one does, as one does. Right. And um, he was involved in the film business. Right. And I'd always had this interest in film. And so um, I and I needed work and there just wasn't a lot of work for dropout scholars of classical Japanese literature. And so um, I ended up getting a job on a film low budget horror film called Matt Riker Mutant Hunt. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And um, I can't say I've seen it. Right. No, no. I, and thank goodness for that. <laughs> thank goodness for that. It always worries me when I say the name because somebody's going to say, Oh, I've seen that. It was terrible. Anyway. So I, um, I got a job um, as a storyboard artist on that film a week before production was supposed to start the director, you know, who, I mean, this was very low budget. The director, suddenly realized that he didn't have an art director and he looked around the room and I was the only one sitting there who wasn't doing anything. And he just pointed at me and said, you, you, what, what's your name? You be the art director. And so that's how I broke into the film business. And I did a, you know, I art directed a, a whole series of films. Let's see now, Breeders, Necropolis, wow. uh, Robot Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, yeah. a, a lot of these really trashy films, but I also uh, could speak Japanese. Right. And And so I started doing more work in production as well, working with Japanese film crews who were coming to the U.S. to do um, shoots there. And so that's how I kind of made my way into Japanese television. And I did that for several years. I realized that I wanted to make films of my own. And I, you know, it was like really learning on the job. So I, I, you know, I stuck with the the work until I figured out how to do this thing. Mm. And then I made two films, two independent films of my own. And they did quite well. I mean, you know, one of them went to Sundance. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, mm. it was in documentary com- competition in, uh, at Sundance. The other one was, sh- you know, shown on PBS. They did quite well. The problem was, is that I had um, I had paid for them with uh, credit cards, right? Mm. And so I was, you know, I was just deeply in debt. Mm. And finally, you know, I realized I just couldn't afford to make another film. I got a small grant to write a film script, but I just decided can't do this anymore. I'm just going to misappropriate the funds and write a novel instead. And I did. And that was my year of meets. That was my first, that was my first novel. And it was about the, you know, all of the experiences that I'd had during those years when I was making Japanese television. And so then after, after I wrote that first novel, I really never looked back. I mean, it's what I had wanted to do right from the start. And so there was a feeling of, you know, of real satisfaction when I was able to do it. And I realized, oh, this is what, this is what I want to do. This is, Mm. this is, you know, this is where my, you know, my love is. Mm, You found your mojo. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I love talking about identity and, and the people that listen to this podcast know that. You know, my parents were Lebanese. They immigrated in the 50s to Australia. And I often talk about how I feel, like am I, I was born here, but I feel culturally more Lebanese than I do Australian. And I'm wondering with you, I mean, you've got an American father and a Japanese mother. How do you perceive yourself in terms of identity? Well, you know, it, it was really funny because when I was growing up, when I was a little girl, yeah. um, I was growing up in a primarily white environment. You know, mm-hmm. there, there weren't a lot of Asian people in the area. And so I really, and and yet people would look at me and they would see a little Japanese girl. So Mm -hmm. that's of course who I, who I became, that's who Mm -hmm. I thought I was. And I became as the object of this gaze, you know, I, I became that, that person. And I never realized until much later that I wasn't a little Japanese girl. And, and so Mm -hmm. I behaved Exactly like the stereotype of a little Japanese girl. You know, I was I was quiet. I was studious. I played an instrument. You know, I was I was good at school. I all of those kinds of stereotypes. I, I you know, I molded myself. An only child. I mean, only it all fits. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then later in um, in college and at university, I went to Japan for the first time as an adult. Anyway, you know, the first time. And um, I could speak a little Japanese, but not very well. And people looked at me, they looked at my face, and what they saw was an American, right? And suddenly I realized that was when I really understood, oh, I'm actually an American and I'm entitled to be all of the things that an American can be. I can be loud and obnoxious and I can have a sense of humor and, you know, I can be cynical and, you know, all of these, I can be outspoken, you know, all of these things that I had, you know, internalized as kind of American characteristics that, you know, I wasn't entitled to. Suddenly it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's me too. And it was really liberating. Oh, do you know, that's so similar to my story in a way, because you're, and I hadn't thought of it in, in that, with that perspective, but of course I felt Lebanese when I was, you know, particularly in primary school, because my mother handmade our cardigans, whereas everybody else had a machine at a cardigan, you know, our lunches were on Lebanese bread Mm -hmm. and they were rolled up, you know, so our identity was very much that. But then as an adult, I went to Lebanon for the first time, feeling very, very Lebanese. And my grandmother was introducing me to her neighbours as Cheryl the Australian. And I was like, (laughs) I was so shocked. I had a real conflict with who I was for a couple of years after that. It really was very, very defining for me because I'd never looked at myself in that way. But it's it's confronting as well when you discover it and exciting. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's when I suddenly realised, wait, wait, this is fantastic because I always yeah. thought it was a handicap. I thought Absolutely. it was a handicap, right, to be mixed race. Yeah, yeah. And I, I thought there was always something slightly wrong with me because mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't this or that, you know, mm. I was like whatever, I was half, mm. I was, you know, I mm. was incomplete. But then when I when I started to realise, like, And especially when I started to write, I realized, no, wait a minute, this is fantastic because I actually have access to 
two completely different cultures and not just cultures, but also ways of expression, you know, because mm. I think storytelling is very different in Japan. Mm. You know, the, the narrative structures are different in Japan. And so that's interesting to me. Yeah, no, there's a there's a real richness, I think, to mm. having uh, to having more than one culture. I want to ask you one more question. And this mm. this happened for me when I got to Lebanon and when I started being with my relatives and my grandmother, a lot of who I was started to make sense because I feel Mm. that culturally there is a difference between the way people live their lives. There is, to be Lebanese made sense to me in Lebanon. There were so many things I recognised in myself that I couldn't put a label on before that trip. Was that the same for you? Very much the same. Yeah, Yeah. very much the same. Things that I had deeply internalised in my Mm. body you know, is something as simple as I, I just remember, you know, being on a film set and it was somebody's house. We were shooting on location and the, you know, the grips took somebody's chair and stood on the chair with their shoes on. Mm. And I just had an instinctive kind of like mm. <gasps> reaction because that was just so not done you know, but they were American, right? And in, J- in Japan, you would never do that. You would never stand on a piece of furniture with your shoes on, right? You would never use your foot to close a cabinet door. You know, just all of these things that nobody ever had to teach me that. You know, it was just part of what I had picked up throughout a childhood being raised by a Japanese mother. Mm. So my most recent trip to Lebanon was about oh, 10 or 15 years ago now. You know, I've got an Australian passport. My name, I think, is anglicised. and But I walk through passport control and the immigration guy stamped my passport and said, and he was a young guy, and he said, welcome to your homeland. Oh, wow. Mm. Wow. Isn't mm. that beautiful? What did that make you feel? I belonged. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Because as an immigrant, you don't have that belonging feeling. You just don't. It's interesting, isn't it? That's amazing. Mm. You know, the only place that I have ever felt completely at home is Hawaii. There are are so many people like me who look like me in Hawaii. The history of Japanese people immigrating to Hawaii. In fact, that is where my grandparents, that's where they met and that's where they immigrated to in the late 1800s. Right. So there's we have a long family history in Hawaii, but also it's just that, you know, people there look like me. Right. There's mm-hmm. a culture of mixed race people in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember the first time I went there, I'd never been there before and I'd never lived in a tropical climate before. And I just remember stepping off the plane and thinking, oh, my goodness, this feels like home. Mm-hmm. So you came to writing, you started writing fiction. Now, obviously, um, you were writing good fiction. I mean, what <laughs> shortlisted for the Booker Prize? I mean, did you expect that to happen? Is that how you expected your career to play oh, out? No, 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 no. Tell no, me how no, you no, felt about no. being shortlisted. I, oh, I mean, I was, I was astonished. You know, I mean, it, it, it never, I mean, it never occurred to me when I wrote my first novel, My Year of Meats. I had very little hope of publishing it. I thought it was just too weird, but it was you know, it was what I wanted to write. I didn't really know how to write a novel because I'd never written one before. I'd never been to MFA school, so I didn't know how people did this. Um, I was just, I was just kind of making it up as I went along. Right. And I also knew that I'd never read a novel like this. And so I didn't even know whether it 
you know, it worked as a novel. And then it ended up, my goal was to sell it for enough money to get myself out of credit card debt. That was it. I just wanted to zero out. You know, and that was <laughs> you know there are easier ways to do that. You know, I, that I know, I know. <laughs> but you know, it was one of those. It was one of those situations where this was my last, my last attempt. And yeah. I had told myself, if I can't sell this novel and clear out my debt, which I think was thirty thousand dollars, right? If I can't sell this novel and make thirty thousand dollars, then I'm going to have have to give up all of this art stuff, all of this writing stuff. You and know, get a real job. <laughs> and get a real job. I was going to go work for a bank. I decided yeah, right. I was going to go work for a bank because I could speak Japanese and I knew I could. I could go, yeah. you know, get a job at Sumitomo Ginko or something, you know, and, and translate or something, whatever. You know, I had a lot of incentive, you know, to, to, to write this book because this was it, you know, my last chance. Because I was, I was, you know, I was in my early forties by then, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. and it was, uh, you can't just, you know, you can't just go around doing the freelance thing and losing money right and left, you know, uh, all your life. So anyway, but I, I really did not expect that book to sell. I, I had very, very modest hopes for it, um, but instead, it, it sold all around the world. That was the first time I came to Australia, and I, you know, I was in Australia, I was in New Zealand. Oh, what Africa. were you in Australia for? Well, I was doing the festivals. You were for, doing the tour. The, oh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you I, was in, I was in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. So you were doing the tours. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. And so I so I did all of that. I traveled around the world, I think, twice for that book, which was astonishing. I had, you know, no idea that this was going to happen. And then wrote a second book. I mean, meanwhile, I was living a life and dealing with aging parents and you know, mm. and everything else. But I, I wrote my second book, which was all over creation and published that. And that, you know, that went well. It, it never quite received the attention that My Year of Meats did, um, but it was a sophomore book. And then, uh, and yeah, and then I wrote A Tale for the Time Being. Um, and I was getting increasingly involved with Buddhism at the time. And so, you know, the first two books are really about um, food and um, environment and, you know, public relations and, you know, corporate culture and, you know, these kinds of things. The the last two books, because my books seem to be written in pairs. So A Tale for the Time Being and the new book, uh, a Tale, uh, The Book of Form and Emptiness, are both more heavily inflected with Buddhist themes, I think. Um, mm. And they're about, um, they're more about young people who are facing um, mental health challenges of various mm -hmm. kinds. Um, and so, yeah. And so I read, I, I wrote, um, I struggled with A Tale for the Time Being. Oh my goodness. I worked on that for so long and had such a hard time with it, but um, it finally got finished and it got published and um, yeah. And then it got shortlisted for the book. <laughs> it was just like, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. How happening? did you feel? I was I was in Australia when when um, oh, when right. the announcement was when I got a call you know from my publisher and uh, and I was just over the moon mm -hmm. you know because the Booker was always kind of the gold standard you know mm -hmm. it is it um, is I, yeah. I mean just being shortlisted is gold standard yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was, I was, I was really, I was absolutely, you know, delighted and terrified, terrified. Partly because you know you have to, you have to dress up and be fancy, you know. Mm, and mm. and it was like, oh, I don't know. And, and be an adult, you know. You're walking you into the room. adult. You have to, and you also, have to know how to, you have to know how to curtsy to to the royals, you know. Yeah, but also I've never you. Done that. You have a responsibility to all those that came before you as well, because it's a stellar list. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So uh, the book of form and emptiness. Where did yeah. the idea come from? Well, I think it came from you know. Th- there's never one i one mm. idea. There's never one source. It's more like a bunch of different kind of random factors start to you know, come together and constellate. And and then from that constellation, you know, the book kind of pops out. So in this case, uh, it was a bunch of things. Part of it was my interest in our relationship with material objects. Mm. The, you know, A Tale for the Time Being was about, you know, it was about time, right? Mm. And I was thinking that the Book of Form and Emptiness would be a book about space and the things that take up space in our world. And so it was, I I knew that I kind of, I wanted to write about things. I wanted to write about our relationship with things that, you know, our, our sense of acquisitiveness, you know, how we, how we need things in order to make, you know, to create our identities now, especially in such, Mm -hmm. because we live in such a materialist culture. I was fascinated by the whole Marie Kondo phenomenon. And, and part of this of course was personal because I had to um, clean out my parents' house when they were, you know, when they died and they had a lot, many, many, many things, right? Um, they weren't hoarders, but they were children of the depression. And so mm. they held on to everything, right? Mm. And um, and so I had to clean out all of that. So I was really preoccupied with our relationship with things. And that was part of it. And then the other part of it, it, it you know, the book is about uh, this little boy, um, Benny O, whose father dies when he's 12. And he hears his dad's voice calling to him in the crematorium, right? He, you know, he starts to hear voices. And, um, and then from there, he starts to hear the voices of objects, of things speaking to him, right? And his mother is a hoarder. So, you know, their, their house is filled with noise and, you know, it's a very cacophonous um, place. But what happened was that again, and again, this is a kind of a personal um, story, but after my own dad died uh, for about a year after he died, I used to hear his voice and Mm -hmm. it was always in a kind of normal everyday context. You know, I'd be washing the dishes or folding the laundry and I would hear him as if he were standing behind me and he would clear his throat and say my name. And this happened so quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd turn around expecting, you know, because it's just happening so quickly. And I just turned around expecting to see him and he wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And there'd be this moment of like, what? And then I'd remember, of course he's dead. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think probably because the, you know, the cognitive dissonance of an experience like this, right, was so great. I just kind of forgot about it. I just went right back to washing the dishes and didn't really think about it. But it happened about five or six times, you know, that I can recall during about a a period of about a year. And then it stopped happening. And then I forgot all about it. But I started in my later life, um, I started um, hanging out with people who hear voices, Right. Mm. And so I started, you know, I, I, and then I kind of remembered this. And so I got interested in this phenomenon of voice hearing, because of course, there are many different ways of hearing voices. And as an artist, as a writer, you know, I hear voices all the time. I hear the voices of my characters speaking to me. I hear Mm. the voices of books speaking to me. Right. But I don't hear them externally. I hear them internally, you know, so I'm hearing the voice as if with my mind. Right. But the experience of hearing my dad's voice was very different. You know, it was very external and I heard it 
I heard his voice as if with my ears, right? Mm-hmm. And my friends who are who are voice hearers describe their voices as exactly that. You know, mm-hmm. their voices are outside them. Um, and so I started to think about this phenomenon, right? And about how, you know, some voices that we hear are, you know, our our culture looks at as as being fine, normal, you know, oh, you're lucky, you know, you ha- you can hear the muse speaking to you, mm-hmm. right? In fact, you know, what I do as a novelist is, is celebrated, right? Um, but I also have a cast of neurotic voices that I hear inside who are telling me that, you know, <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it is that I'm doing is really bad and I should stop, you know? And then I had that experience with my dad's voice, you know, and then there are, you know, other people, my, you know, friends of mine who hear abusive voices as if they are on the outside. Right. Mm. And it, and, and, you know, people who are experiencing that, you know, are, are, you know, very disturbed and can be very traumatized by that. Mm. My point is though, is that voice hearing is actually far more common than we understand. And some voices, you know, are celebrated and some voices are pathologized. And my feeling about it is that, you know, the bandwidth for what we call normal in this culture is very, very narrow, right? Mm. But in fact, this phenomenon is, you know, is very diverse. And Mm. so why can't we just widen out our notion of normal because normal is a cultural construct we made up this idea of normal right Mm. so why don't we just remake it why don't we just remake it into Mm. something that is more inclusive and generous and compassionate you know that that seems possible to me and so Mm. that's really the kind of area that I was um you know investigating in the book of form and emptiness yeah Ruth we're out of time we loved it the book of form and emptiness Ruth, thank you so much for your time today. It's such a pleasure talking to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.